Thank you for listening to Schick Talk, the new podcast produced by the Swine Health Information Center. I'm Barb Detterman, your host for today's episode. And we are talking with Executive Director Paul Sunberg. Hello, Paul. How are you doing today? Good morning, Barb. I'm fine. Thanks. Good, good. So, Paul, why does Schick want to have a podcast about coccidiosis? Well, uh, one of the things that we try to do with the webinars and the podcasts that we have is we try to address what we call industry chatter. The idea is to give practitioners and pork producers a chance to hear about difficult-to-manage syndromes or cases out in the countryside and talk about management, talk about treatment and management, hear from others that have experience. And so during July, we saw a significant uptick in the submissions that included coccidiosis in the Iowa State Veterinary Diagnostic Lab. And that leads us to something's going on out there in the countryside with coccidia. And we wanted to give people an opportunity to talk to each other, to learn from each other about this, because there there are limited therapeutic options for coccidia. Okay, very good. Well, and one of the things that we did with with this uh, edition of our podcast is that we had two guests on there. First of all, Dr. Jeremy Pittman, and and second was Dr. Kent Swartz. Uh, Paul, why are these folks experts in this area? Well, just like I said, we had them on because they have experience with that. Dr. Pittman is with Smithfield, the North Region Production, and he has uh, personal experience on some of his farms with uh, managing coccidia, how to treat it, how to clean up, how to manage to decrease as much as possible the clinical signs. Um, Dr. Schwartz is with the Iowa State University Veterinary Diagnostic Lab. He's an expert in diagnostics. He's an expert in clinicals, testing, and we thought that that would give a technical uh, expertise to the uh, webinar and the podcast, as well as the practical on-the-farm expertise that Dr. Pittman could offer. Awesome. And as you mentioned, we have a webinar in addition to this podcast on our website. Uh, How do you feel like uh, that's going to help us reach more people? Well, the webinar is a very comprehensive look. We we have um, uh, people from Canada, from the U.S. that have experience in this. And so it's a very comprehensive look. And, And that webinar is available on the Swine Health Information Center website. Uh, swinehealth.org, and the podcast gives an opportunity for people to listen to a more condensed version of the webinar and get the highlights from the people that actually participated. Excellent. And Paul, we probably also want to mention that if people have ideas or questions that they would like to see addressed either in a webinar or a podcast, they should get a hold of you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, The whole idea behind the webinars, behind the podcast, as I said, is industry chatter. And we need to hear what the industry chatter is if we're going to address that. We're trying to give people uh, the best information we can give them about topical things that they're interested in. And I'm always interested in getting that feedback and that input. So anybody can send me an email at psunberg at swinehealth.org and uh, let me know what's on their mind. Very good. With that introduction, we'll roll into this week's uh, podcast. First of all, uh, thank you, Dr. Jeremy Pittman and Dr. Kent Swartz for joining us today on Chick Talk. And we're going to talk about an old problem, but maybe we haven't talked about it very much lately in pork production. And uh, let's start with you, Dr. Pittman. Exactly why did we start talking about coccidiosis? Is it, is it prevalent now? And how did this happen? 
Yeah, I think two things. Uh, one was uh, some of the the new recording that is going on through the diagnostic labs, new reporting, excuse me, on diseases and what the diagnostic labs are seeing. There was a some noise in June, July on those reportings that would indicate an, an increase in coccidiosis cases. And I think Dr. Schwartz can comment a little bit more on that. But I think some of that is seasonal. We normally would see coccidiosis prevalence increase a little bit more in the summertime. High temperatures, high humidity uh, allow quicker development of the OSS and more clinical cases. In addition to that, it's been very difficult to get uh, the one treatment that most practitioners would utilize you know, for cases of coccidiosis, which is the off-label usage of Marquis, which is an equine product. So that product has been difficult to get. And so I think that's that combination of those two being the summer, more prevalent clinical disease of coccidiosis and the lack of some successful treatment options have really kind of brought this in the discussion a little bit more. And it's always been there. I just think we've had pretty decent ways to control it, or at least most practitioners would feel that they could control it without having to increase discussion around it. Um, it, it is not something that we would talk about normally in meetings or when we get together as swine veterinarians. It's not a big topic of discussion, but when it's there, it, it can be a little bit frustrating for a practitioner and for a farmer uh, to deal with, particularly if you don't have very good treatment options. Okay. So, Dr. Schwartz, we're seeing more of this being reported this summer? Yeah, there's more of it reported. And again, part of that's our reporting system. Um, and part of that would be increased awareness. But I think large systems and or just people in general have a better handle on cost of these subclinical diseases. And so, in the Farrowan House, we're, we're seeing some compromise of performance. And as our diagnostics get a little more keen, a little more focused, uh, you know, we can always find rotavirus and blame it, but is it always acting alone, right? Is there something else that's going on there? And, and I think our newer recording system here at the Diagnostic Lab allows us to parse out multifactorial or, or agents that are combining to create a disease process. And so I think it gets our attention because it's real, because it's insidious, because it costs a little bit in terms of gain and, and performance, and because we lost one of or, or have decreased what, and, and another reason could be the, the lack or loss of uh, having products that are, can, can specifically control this disease. Okay. So, Dr. Pittman, what, uh, for probably some, a generation of producers maybe even, do, will they know what coccidiosis looks like? Is that something that a producer is used to seeing in their farm? I don't know that all producers are used to seeing coccidiosis. I would suspect that all producers have seen it at some point, kind of to that point that it's pretty ubiquitous and all farms probably have it. We just don't necessarily see it clinically. You know, the most common presentation of it, if you ask practitioners, it would be a pasty-like scour, uh, yellow to white to gray in color, and it would have sort of a, a toothpaste consistency. And it's, it's pretty well defined by the age of the pig. You're not going to see it in pig's less than five days of age, really, uh, because of the life cycle of the protozoa. And so historically, most would say that we clinically start seeing it around seven days of age, and that's seven to 14 days, that second, second week of life. And pigs will develop this pasty sort of scour that sticks to everything. Uh, the pigs look a little dirty, depending on the floor type you have, just because it, it sort of sticks to them as well. And so it's pretty clinical. I mean, most veterinarians could probably walk by a, a ferron crate and see that characteristic scour and say, yep, there's probably coccidiosis in there. Confirming that it's coccidiosis is a little bit more difficult diagnostically, but it's, I wouldn't say specific type of diarrhea, um, but very common of that pasty toothpaste 
uh, sticks to walls kind of consistency is what we would describe it as. Okay. So if a producer is, or, you know, a grower is looking at, at the herd and sees this type of example, could they ever mistake it for something different guys? Or is that, is it always going to be praxidiosis? And then how important is it to get the correct diagnosis and how do we do that? I'll start. Um, (laughs) When one, uh, looks at the presentation of these endemic diarrheas or diarrheas that are a little bit sporadic. Usually they're caused by something that's always present in the herd and it's sort of gotten out of balance. The coccidia, I think it's, it's critical for, for people to not automatically assign cause to a diarrhea. Uh, these agents are, are pretty easy to detect with modern techniques. So the, the presence of rotavirus does not mean rotavirus is the cause. The pre- detecting a oocyst of coccidia doesn't necessarily mean it's acting alone. And so I think we've gotten a little uh, more aggressive in our diagnostic workups, at least for the cases that don't make sense or are somehow different in a herd. Those diagnostic workups tend to be a little more intensive to not only look to see what's there and confirm our bias, but also look to see what else is there or what is else is not there. Okay. Dr. Pittman, how, how is a producer going to be able to work through that process or what does he, what does he need to do other than call you? Yeah. So I think uh, echoing a lot of what Dr. Schwartz said and in the way that I think about the diseases, if I see scours like that or a producer sees scours like that, you know, coccidiosis probably moves upper in the ranks and and what may be causing it just because of the clinical appearance and the age of the pig again is very important mm-hmm. but but it doesn't eliminate all the other potential causes and we know a lot of these enteric pathogens can co-infect the pig and it may not be the coccidiosis that's really causing the problem it may be something else and depending on the morbidity and the mortality uh, the extent the prevalence uh, there are a lot of things that would go into the investigation but you have to be cognizant about other enteric disease challenges or other other systemic disease challenges in the herd that may be manifesting as enteric disease or scours in the house. And so while coccidiosis may go higher on my differential list on the ranking, it doesn't mean that other causes of diarrhea taken off the list. Everything stays on the list until I can either confirm or uh, deny the presence or impact of those pathogens based on the diagnostic testing. And so for something like this, particularly with our system, we would want some sort of additional diagnostics to confirm Yes, that coccidiosis is part of the problem, but also that we're not missing out on something like uncontrolled rotavirus or a Clostridium uh, perfringens type of bacteria, or maybe even uh, some of the viral coronaviruses that we're concerned about, whether that's endemic on a farm or epidemic in nature. Um, we know that most of the disease challenges we deal with in pigs are not singular. Um, they're usually co-infections of multiple things in play, and it may not necessarily always be infectious either. There can be environmental concerns. The Farron house, you have to look at air, you need to look at food and water sources, which is really the sow in that case. And so the pig's environment, the sow, whether she's eating or drinking or whether we have something else going on. So it's a, it's a full holistic re- approach to it. And what's nice about coccidiosis is we do have some pretty good diagnostic tests to confirm that it's present, yes or no. And then secondly, how much of it is contributing to the clinical diarrhea that we're seeing. Okay. What would you say are the major risk factors here? Why would you uh, look in a, in a farrowing house and say, yeah, I think we're going to test for that because we have this that's causing some other issues and it could also be a part of this, not just the diarrhea diagnosis, but what are some other risk factors that producers need to be aware of? I'll start. I think, um, I think the first thing is the, the diarrhea is, is 
somewhat characteristic. And so again, you see that characteristic diarrhea, coccidiosis is going to be a little bit higher on your list of, of differentials compared to some of the other things we deal with more routinely than we would coccidiosis, things like Clostridium and rotavirus, and maybe some of the coronaviruses. But from a risk factor standpoint, again, it's pretty endemic. Most sow farms probably have coccidiosis at some level. It's just not clinically apparent. In general, anything that would allow for the eggs to stay in the environment from one group of pigs to the next. So sanitation is a big piece of that, really with any enteric disease challenge. So we look at risk factors that would make it difficult to properly clean Pharaoh environment from one group of pigs to the next group of pigs. Things that would increase heat and humidity and allow those oocysts to develop specifically for coccidiosis. So flooring type has always been highlighted as a big risk factor, uh, type of flooring that you have in farrowing for coccidiosis. And something like a plastic floors versus a woven wire versus a tri-bar type of metal flooring, some of that is just uh, the increased ability for organic material, fecal material to stay between groups because it's more difficult to clean. You know, there's other things that have been used for coccidiosis, coccidiosis control, like flaming, um, where you can actually burn the crates. And so obviously plastic flooring, you can't do that with. And so it, it minimizes the ability to implement additional sanitation measures if you have something like plastic flooring. There's just more spaces for the fecal material to live. It's more difficult to clean and it allows that oral fecal route of transmission and those oocysts that survive in the environment fairly well to be carried over from one farrowing batch to the next farrowing batch to the next farrowing batch. And so I think that's a huge risk factor for us when we look at it. It's much more of an environmental sanitation dynamic than it really is anything else. Okay. Dr. Schwartz? I think to supplement that, I think it's important to understand that those oocysts are tough. Those eggs will not break down with conventional cleaning techniques or, or disinfectants. They're there. That makes it really hard to eliminate, and it won't be eliminated. The next big piece is the number of eggs that they ingest, the piglets ingest, determine the impact of the infection, whether it'll be subclinical uh, or whether it'll be clinical, and they develop diarrhea. And the more eggs they ingest, the sicker they get, one, and two, the more oocysts or eggs that they'll shed and contaminate the environment, pass on to their litter mates and or subsequent farrowing. So, you know, dose determines the disease. Dose is also really big in magnifying the number of oocysts in the environment. So, you know, where I come from over the last 40 years, it's it usually boiled down to sanitation, 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 because we didn't have any real good products to treat that with. That life cycle is so quick. And this organism, this particular type of coccidia is different than what we think about in dogs, cats, or cattle, because it's a very, very rapid life cycle and it's not susceptible to the same type of coccidia stats. So, you know, there's the risk factors that have been mentioned. And one more thing I would say, too, is Al Lehman used to say, sick pigs get sick. And, and if there's PERS or if there's some sort of a nagging endemic problem in a herd, it just seems to magnify everything else that's there. So uh, that would be one of those systemic diseases that perhaps could manifest as increased coccidia. Yeah, I'd also add to that, in addition to the dose response, there's also clearly an age response. So the younger the pig, when it gets initially infected, the much more clinical impact it has on growth rate and potentially even mortality or morbidity with that. So some of the other strategies of, you know, any eggs that are maybe residual in the environment, if we can cover those up or delay the amount of time it takes for those pigs to ingest those eggs. People have used water sealer or concrete sealer or even latex paint 
Some would say uh, lime washing may cover those eggs long enough. If you can just delay the point at which those pigs actually ingest and become infected, the clinical impact is drastically different if it's delayed. So this is not a disease they're going to find any place other than the farrowing house? I think in our systems, that's pretty much where they're going to see that challenge. We'll have some post-weaning coccidiosis where pigs may get placed into a nursery or really in wean to finish where you're probably on on maybe more concrete slatted barns where they can see coccidiosis post-weaning. And there is some impact to that. It's just clearly not as devastating as what you would see in the Farron house because the pigs are a little bit older, a little bit more robust when they get in that post-weaning phase. However, like Schwartz mentioned, I mean, these are not independent diseases. And so a lot of times if you have coccidiosis post-weaning with other disease challenges, such as PERS, such as hemolytic E. coli or something like that, those diseases are not additive as much as they are multiplicative. So, You guys were talking about sanitation. If a particular facility is diagnosed with coccidiosis, what do you recommend to the grower or producer to do for that sanitation? What are the things, because you were talking about delaying it, the different kinds of disinfectants, uh, all those, you know, what would be a producer's first way of trying to get things taken care of? 40 years ago, we'd say use a good detergent and hot water and wash and then do that again and maybe uh, use some concentrated Clorox or ammonia, and when that failed, try sealing the surfaces. We were dealing a lot of times with concrete, with uh, wood boards, divider boards, porous materials, right? So, I mean, uh, and smaller farmers that were, or small farms that were willing to do whatever it took to do that. Even though Cox City were present in pasture farming operations, you rarely saw it because of the low dose that they would receive, the absence of continuous farrowing, continuous seeding of their environment. The cleanup looks, it's just aggressive. It's nothing secret about it as far as I'm concerned. Dr. Pittman knows how to do this on a large scale. I did it on small farms. So go ahead, Jeremy. Yeah, I think, you know, the biggest difference is, and we learned a lot about this with PED and sort of PED cleanups and that our standard sanitation programs are not standard, right? And so I think what happens is it's it's not a great thing to have to go in and power wash a whole bunch of manure from a farrowing crate and it's a tedious job. But what happens, I think, is at first we just have to accept that our sanitation level may not be at the at the level we want it to be or it needs to be for something like this. And so I, I'd always say through a lot of the cleanups that we did, sort of the two best tools that you have for any sanitation program is a flashlight and a separate pair of eyes. And so whoever's washing the crate, somebody else needs to go in behind them with a flashlight and actually look and inspect the crate and inspect the room um, and make sure that we're dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's and we're looking in the corners and we're looking where manure may build up and we're getting you know better visibility by the people that are actually doing the work into where common points of failure in that process will be. So I think reiterate all the things Schwartz said about detergents and hot water and pressure washing and and doing it the right way, you've got a checklist of how you're supposed to wash a room, but a piece that we miss a lot of times, and we're in a hurry. A lot of these farron, you know, barns, the most expensive thing on a farron operation is an empty farron crate kind of thing. And so we want to turn those as quickly as possible. And so we miss that step where we just, we assume that the person that's been washing the crates knows what they're doing and we don't inspect. And so I think a lot of opportunity comes in to just making sure we actually are doing uh, what we think we're doing. And so farron barn supervisor, a manager, you know, another supervisor, somebody that doesn't have anything to do with the Farron house coming in and inspecting, you know, through that washing process multiple times, again, with a flashlight and another set of eyes just to say, hey, 
you miss a spot, we need to concentrate on this area, you know, increased enhanced sanitation. And we learned a lot of that in PED cleanups, where it quickly told on you if you weren't following sanitation protocols like you should be. One other thing I might add would be the fact that huge numbers of, of eggs are shed in feces from pigs that have diarrhea. And so just one gram could have 30,000 eggs, and it really only takes about 300 to infect a pig. So you think about getting a little bit of manure on a, on a boot, stepping into one crate, moving to another crate, or between rooms from older pigs to younger pigs. So that bios, internal biosecurity is is a huge factor, I think, in, in terms of trying to limit the spread and, and the seeding down for subsequent litters. Great. Yeah, because I think from, from the webinar, which uh, we're going to invite everyone to uh, listen to the webinar that you gentlemen presented, along with a few others for Schick and AASV, one of you mentioned, uh, I think it was you, Dr. Pittman, farrowing crate biosecurity. Does a producer need to make sure, no matter what his size, from Smithfield size down to a small producer, do they need to make sure they have a written farrowing crate biosecurity plan? I don't know about written. Um, I know a lot of people don't like stuff written down and don't like reams and reams of, of protocols, but there, there clearly needs to be expectation on the protocol for what we would call farrowing crate biosecurity. And again, we learned a lot about this uh, with PED and PD cleanups. And it's just the idea that anything that goes into a farrowing crate and then comes out and goes into another farrowing crate is a, a source of transmission, whether that's a pig, whether that's equipment, syringe, your hands, a boot, whatever it may be. I think it's important to evaluate that when you're going through and, you know, whether we're cross-fostering pigs or we're processing pigs or whatever we're doing, that we take into account what we're actually putting in a crate and moving from one crate to the next and whether we could be transmitting something like Oasis for coccidia or viruses for something like PED or Delta coronavirus or even other non-enteric pathogens such as PERS um, or bacteria. And so we need to be concerned about that. It's clear we understand the risk of transmitting pigs between letters as we cross foster and we understand the impact that can have, but other stuff as well. Uh, fomites would be the common term we would use in, in veterinary medicine about inanimate objects that can transmit pathogens from one crate to the next. And for this in particular, we're talking about diseases that exist in, in pig manure. And clearly, there's plenty of that in a farrowing crate transmitting from one crate to the next. So I think it's just general, what we would call farrowing crate biosecurity. Uh, we try to manage the crates all in, all out, no different than you would a barn or a farrowing room. Take it down to the crate level and be cognizant of what you're doing. And you can't completely eliminate that in a farrowing house. At times, you're going to move pigs, you're going to move equipment, you're going to have to process pigs, you're going to have to move sows. You know, even though you can minimize it, there's still going to be that activity. And so you just understand that risk and try and put in some control measures to mitigate that risk when it happens. Quick question I have, and I should have started this, but what is coccidiosis? I mean, what are we talking about exactly? Are we talking disease or, or can you just give us a good general explanation of what coccidiosis is? I could say that coccidia is not a bacteria and it's not a virus. The rules you learn for those don't apply. It's a parasite. It's a one-celled parasite, protozoan. It's been in virtually any... All, all vertebrates are infected with coccidia, I'll say that. And most of the time, we never know it's there. It's been a, a disease that, when, when disease occurs, it tends to be because too many animals are crowded in too small a space. And so that buildup of dose to young animals or susceptible animals results in a disease. So we don't have a vaccine or an antibiotic that'll work for coccidia in pigs, particularly with a really short life cycle and the the fact that there's neonates. So 
we've got to approach this through management, I would say, primarily. And I think we have some tools to do it if we'll just do it. So, Dr. Pittman, what would be your top three things you think a producer needs to address if he is having this diagnosis in his herd? Uh, sanitation, sanitation, and sanitation. Um, I think given what we have learned about it and some of the comments that Dr. Schwartz just made is understanding this is not a bacteria, this is not a virus, and so there are some aspects of this disease process that are important, and so you have to break the life cycle of that parasite. And so, and in this one, because it's fecal oral transmitted and those pigs are most likely uh, getting, picking up that pathogen from the environment, it really is sanitation between groups. Hammering on that sanitation, we don't have for, you know, very limited amount of treatment options uh, for the, the parasite. And so it kind of gets back to this basic sanitation program. There's, there's a lot of other things we still, I think, need to learn about the, the pathogen that maybe help us in the future. It doesn't seem like there's really any immunity transferred from the sow to the piglet. So it doesn't look like we could utilize that immunity axis like we do for other bacteria and pathogens and, that, and viruses um, to control. So vaccination or, or exposure or something like that before farrowing doesn't look like a very good strategy that would be effective. And so it, it really comes down to how do I mitigate the amount of eggs that are in the environment, reduce that dose the pig's going to see, delay the amount of time it takes for that pig to ingest those oocysts by some means. You know, when we have the ability to treat those pigs and reduce the amount of eggs that are shed into the environment, and that coupled with sanitation will decrease the overall risk. And so it really comes down to sanitation and focus and effort on sanitizing the environment and doing that to the best of our abilities. Very good. So what does it cost a producer if he finds this in his farrowing room? There's very little data in the United States. So we, we did a project this summer. Uh, hopefully we'll be presenting that in, in 2021 at the AASV with a student presentation. But our data suggests that it's about a pound a pig um, on litters that are impacted and anywhere between a half to two-thirds of a pig per litter in either mortality or excluded pigs, so pigs that don't gain well and have to be, you know, quality controlled before they move on downstream. Uh, there's some impact downstream as well on birth rate that's been reported in the literature. There's a lot of European data that's been reported in, say, the IPVS proceedings and abstracts because they've had a, a labeled product in, in Baycocks where they've been able to actually treat animals and, and show the comparison of treated controlled animals versus untreated animals. And their data would suggest it's about a pound of wean pig too, on average. I mean, some of that depends on how prevalent it is within the population, whether you have 10% of the litters affected or 50% of the litters affected, or even up to 90%, as was indicated by Dr. Stricker in, in the webinar. And so it depends on the prevalence and how long it actually persists within the herd, you know, how many batches or how many groups of wean pigs are actually impacted by it. I think it's easily a pound of pig. So each producer can determine what that pound of wean pig is worth to them and however their contract is set up. And so, and for us, it, you know, to get back to sort of the importance of this and why we're paying attention to it is, you know, the weight of the wean pig in our system is important, both from the uh, sow producer, uh, the sow farm being paid on a sort of a, a weight-based contract, but then also the importance of the weight of that pig in a wean to finish system. Um, the heavier the pig is, the more robust it is, the faster it's going to grow, the better it's going to transition post-weaning. Survivability and gain is going to be a lot better. And so that's, that's an even bigger impact that we don't fully understand the value of. Very good. Dr. Schwartz, what have we missed on when we're talking about this uh, disease that we need to make sure producers are aware of? Well, I think we've emphasized that 
the dose determines the disease, and so we've got to minimize the dose that they're infected with. I mean, that's that's number one. From where I sit as a diagnostic diagnostician here, uh, I think being sure that we're blaming the right thing for what's going wrong in our herds and realizing that these agents often work together. Sometimes we have to approach it from multiple multiple directions with, with the other E. coli, rotavirus, coronavirus, or uh, even some salmonella. I think healthy pigs at weaning is a whole lot better than pigs that are sort of compromised. So even though it may not be affecting mortality very much, there's I think some evidence that we've got uh, some long-term impact on the microbiome of the gut and, and the way the organisms interact with the gut, uh, particularly during that weaning and transition period. I wouldn't underestimate its impact. I guess the other, other thing I would say is this disease has been around, this agent has been around for a long time, sporadically causing disease uh, ever since we put pigs in confinement, basically. Well, gentlemen, is there anything else that we need to add to uh, what we're talking to producers about, about this, uh, the impact? Or um, I love the way you guys have stressed the sanitation. I think that's going to be our lead with that. So I appreciate that. Is there uh, anything else you can think of that we might have missed? I had my notes from your webinar that I was following here, but uh, anything else we need to bring up with this? Just one. I think, you know, there's obviously in the past week been a lot of discussion about coccidiosis. And, you know, I had to be careful that relative to other disease challenges, it's it's not major, uh, but it can be very frustrating if you have it, uh, particularly with lack of some easier treatment options here recently. I think it's one of those where it's a low-hanging fruit. There's a lot of opportunity to, to control it if you have it. It's sporadic, and so you're not going to be dealing with it not necessarily for a long period of time or necessarily throughout the whole year. Most farms have other major disease issues that they would be concerned with. And so you can't forget about those. And But this one is a little frustrating. It's a little little nagging for producers. And you just have to take into account that it's slightly different than some of the other entire pathogens we deal with and other disease challenges. And so, you know, give it credit for what it's due, but don't give it too much credit. How about you, Dr. Schwartz? I think that was well put. Okay. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Schick Talk from the Swine Health Information Center. Learn more about our organization and our mission to protect the health of the U.S. swine herd at www.swinehealth.org.